0: Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. The objective, the mission statement of the church hasn't changed. The primary objective hasn't changed. And I don't envision it's going to change either. And it reads this way. In fact, it's in the back of your bulletin. It's on our website. What are we here for? It says, Christ Community Church exists to worship God, fellowship and community, and build the body of Christ, a body is a local church, by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And there's scripture references there. And I like that mission statement. It's concise. It's it's biblical, I think, and I think it's noteworthy. As we kind of commemorate, celebrate the weekend, thinking about where we've been, where we need to go in our 12th year. And uh, in what is a very challenging mission field, a harvest ready to be gleaned, which we call South Florida. And I remember the very first message I preached 11 years ago for our church, and it was called God's Marching Orders. And what it did was it set forth the mission for our church, which, of course, we talked about beginning with the Great Commandment, which is where we get our slogan from, love God, love people. Then you have, of course, the Great Commission, which is the disciple-making mission. Jesus not only gave our church, but is really given all biblically-based churches. And then the Great Commitment, Acts 1-8, we are to be witnesses here, there, and everywhere for our Lord Jesus. And I think we've been faithful as a church institution in this community to just strive to that mission because we have made, matured, and multiplied disciples. But we can lose sight in hearing that mission statement as to the personal aspect of it. Because when you think of church, you think of the institution, the building, and the budget, and the bodies that are in the building. And what I wanna share with you today and next week in in light of our anniversary, is the goal of the church, and part one starts with you personally. So think of this message, think of these next two Sundays, it's kind of a a reboot, a, uh, a renewal, a recalibration of the main thing. The main thing needs to always be the main thing. We want to major in the majors and minor in the minors. And you may find this interesting. But our goal, listen carefully, our goal as an objective is not to grow this church numerically or to necessarily have a building. Our calling is actually very simple for the leadership of the church. It is to feed lead, and protect the flock that God has given us. In other words, our primary job is your sanctification. We strive for you to go deep, and then Jesus will determine how wide it goes. In fact, there's a scripture that talks about that. Ephesians four twelve and 13. So you know where this is based. Leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, to edify, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our responsibility. And more specifically, for each and every one of you, it's this, for you to be like a particular person, we should all know and love. The idea being, the more you become like that person, the more likely we are to see this church grow and be what the Lord wants it to be, as it should be. And of course, the person we need to be like that, that should be our goal, and everyone listening later online to this, whoever comes in contact with us, they should know. The goal is, of course, to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ Christ-likeness. If we do that, you're obeying God's marching orders. And you're going to see how that works in the next couple of Sundays. The more we're like Christ, the more it is you're going to want to live, love, serve, show, and tell people about him. And to accomplish this, turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter or book to the Philippians chapter 3. Because there you're following the teaching of an apostle, a man who knew what his reason for living was, which was to live like the Lord. That was, he figured out the ultimate reason for his existence. And to do that, you have to really know this person you're intending to follow, right? So in verses 9 to 11 here in this chapter, he yearns to know Christ experientially. He doesn't just want to know him intellectually. He wants to know him relationally to the extent that he would want to suffer in such a way as to relate to Jesus. Philippians 3 Look what it says in verse 10. This is amazing. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Who prays for that? How many of you so hungered wanted to be so close to the Lord Jesus that you would desire closeness to him that only comes through suffering it's almost as if you're praying for suffering so you can be closer to Jesus relationally and then experience resurrection power in your life. So let's see how we're going to fulfill that goal today. We're going to look at spiritual discontentment that you need to be Christ-like and then spiritual motivation. And the next time, we're going to get into more about how that works, how we participate, how we do that. But first, you need some spiritual discontentment, which you find here in verses 12 and 13 of this text. Verse 12, Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's incredible language. It really is. In fact, Paul is using, if you heard that, I was telling one of our families to be listening for that, track and field talk to make it work. He says, I press on, literally in the Greek, means to run fast, run hard, to obtain something. In the Greek, it means to take a hold of something by the hand, to claim something. And you know, if you read Paul, you understand he loves sports analogies and military analogies in his writing. Maybe he was a frustrated jock like I am. You could have seen that yesterday. And he's talking about running to win. Now, before we pick that apart, a little bit. You could summarize it this way. It is the ultimate goal and meaning of life. That's what he's summarizing here. I remember there was a professor I read about at Duke University and he was teaching a business management class and he asked his students to come up with a strategic plan, a personal plan. And he said this, quote, with few exceptions, what they wanted fell into three categories, money, power, and stuff. Things, very big things like vacation homes, expensive foreign cars, yachts, and even airplanes. And in fact, their their response, their request of the faculty was this, teach us how to be a money-making machine. Now, that's not exactly a Christ-exalted motivation, is it? I mean, there's no thought there of humanitarian service. Nobody mentioned anything moral, nothing spiritual. Yet, what those students wanted maybe is what most people want in the world. And in contrast to that, what you just heard, Paul's overriding ambition was totally different. And his argument, by example to us, should be the same. His overwhelming desire and passion in life was to know and become increasingly conformed or molded into the holy image of Jesus Christ. How can that be? How do you do that? Next Sunday, we'll get into more have-tos, but what we should know here is that at CCC, to be Christ-like, you have to start with having a spiritual discontentment. And that's strange that I'm saying that coming from Paul, because Paul says in Philippians 4, the key to Christian joy is contentment. But that's speaking to contentment of what God gives us and blesses us with. Not... Christ-likeness. See, Paul's talking about something he wants and doesn't yet have. And he's admitting it while he knows he's a Christian at the same time. I mean, he's a believer. He wrote in the Spirit almost half the New Testament. He knows he's going to heaven. He was assured of his salvation, you know, the end of Romans 9. His ticket to paradise was stamped. He's saved. So why couldn't he just coast in the faith like so many people do in Christianity? casual, comfortable Christianity. You know, the attitude of, I don't need to work as hard at school or at my job because I'm in Christ. Or I don't need to love my parents or my spouse as much as I should, or my children anymore because I'm in Christ. Guaranteed. In fact, Paul went on to say, in fact, earlier in this chapter, he was a very religious, well-respected man As a Jewish Pharisee, he even persecuted the early church until the Lord knocked him off his horse later. But he wasn't satisfied with all that stuff like the Duke University students had. And he was known in his community as being a really righteous guy. Tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee among Pharisees of the law, right? And uh, that was really self-righteousness. But all of that, he said, meant nothing to him. It was literally to use... One way of defining the word dung, it was horse manure to him compared to knowing the Lord Jesus. He was a moralist, and surface law keeping isn't what he's looking for, what the Lord's looking for. As Paul's writing, he knows he hasn't arrived yet, and neither have you. That's not what we were about or made for. In fact, John Newton, you might know, is the writer of the song we sang today, Amazing Grace. He once said this, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be, but I thank God I am not what I once was. That's pretty good. That is really good stuff. That's spiritual discontentment. He wasn't content with his current state of his walk with Christ at the time. It's like the character Christian. Remember the book Pilgrim's Progress, that classic we studied in our family group and Christian walked, and he journeyed, he obeyed the Lord. Then there were times he was tempted, he fell back, he got back up, but it wasn't until the end that he crossed the finish line, which is getting to Celestial City. That's spiritual discontentment. He was like that. It's Christ-like. So it's good to be content with what God has given you. It's good to be discontent with who you are right now in Christ. Paul wanted something more than just a fire insurance premium from hell, paid for in his pocket by Jesus. So what's Paul missing? One one hint here, he says, he's not been yet made perfect, perfect. In the Greek, that would have the idea of being completed, finished, accomplished. He said that because if he had been finished and completed, he'd already be holding the prize, which he wasn't at the time he wrote this. So what he's saying is Paul, and us, you and I, we are incomplete as a work of God in this life. And then there's a purpose clause here that gives us another big clue. He says he's running after something in order to catch something. That would literally be a, like a person. He's pursuing something, he's eagerly seeking something. What verse 13 calls what lies ahead. In verse 14 he calls it the prize, this upward calling, uh, an invitation somewhere from God. But the purpose is in the phrase there, so that, or because. He wants to make something his own. He wants to lay a hold or take possession of something here because it's something Jesus made in us. And I'm going to tease you with that question for a second. Some of you already may know the answer to what the question is. You may already have it in mind, but let me give you a little more spiritual discontentment. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So Paul knows he hasn't made it yet. He's got to strain forward to get it. Press toward the goal. It's a really strong Greek verb. It has the idea of just reaching out, pressing towards something. In fact, it's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. How many of you were running? I don't know. We didn't have a race yesterday. We had a tug of war. But if you've ever remember as kids running in the neighborhood or in your PE class, there was races. And if you were neck and neck, and if you were the slightest bit competitive, I am, if you were getting toward the finish line, the tape, you would stretch out, right, a body part of some kind, which I think you're only supposed to do that in an official race, but you just strain, you, you press on, you push yourself to cross the line. That's the picture Paul's trying to give us here. He's communicating it in a spiritual, not a physical sense. To go, what? To go for what lies ahead, or in the original language, what is before us, what's in front of us. In fact, several times in the New Testament, Paul, this pseudo jock, used this kind of language to describe our faith. 1 Corinthians 9.24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. And then 2 Timothy 4.7, he wrote, I have, he mixed the metaphors here, little boxing here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, which is what that means. The writer of Hebrews 12.1, I still go on record as saying, I think that's Paul, adds this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, Christianity is not a sprint, folks. It's a marathon. It's a long race. And so you can see that's why we call our sanctification being progressive. Sanctification has a past, present, and future of it. When you were saved, you were sanctified. You were made apart, set apart, holy, made different, unique. And then you're progressively becoming more holy every day until you get to the final part, which is our glorification. So there's a doing, there's an effort we have to put forth, a straining, a pressing forward to make it. Because there's people that erroneously say, you know, let go and let God. That's actually not biblical in and of itself. There's a sense in which you count your faith and the Lord is working, yes, but we participate in our sanctification. Do you have a text for that, Bernie? Yeah, just go back a page in your Bible to Philippians 2, same author, same letter. Says in Philippians 2, in the middle of verse 12, it's very, very familiar. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like pressing an effort to me. I'm not letting go there. I'm supposed to do something. Work out your own salvation. But then it's a continuous sentence in the next verb. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is a conundrum. Who's sanctifying you? You or God? Both of you. Both of us. God works on us as we work to be sanctified. And you do that not because you're, so you get clear, verse 12, work out your own salvation. He's meaning the part that out of love, obedience, and gratitude, not to score points with God, we are striving and running to be more Christ-like. So now you think, okay, now he's gonna give us the how. Here we go at CCC, word, prayer, church, means of grace, right? Eat Bible, talk to the Lord, don't miss fellowshipping, congregating at church on Sunday, and community groups, Is that it? Not really. Maybe it's just reading good books on Christology. That would help, and I enjoy doing that. That's very beneficial. That's very, very good. But you know what? I know I need to beware of studying doctrine and the word apart from being with Christ relationally. It's not an academic exercise. Shouldn't be. So I like what Paul says here also. He's forgetting what lies behind. He's putting his past behind him. How many of you have done that, right? It says in this chapter, he's counted all the material stuff, the righteous reputation he had. As a Pharisee, he counts that as garbage compared to having Christ. So he's put that behind. And he also left behind his sins, that he was a persecutor of the church and was leading Christians to death right after the church was birthed at Pentecost. He cast the shame and the guilt aside that he had because he knew in Christ God forgives. Listen, God forgives sinners past, present, and future. I've dealt with that. You know, some people think pastors fall out of clouds from the sky and they just like become pastors like overnight and they're these really good, blessed. No, pastors, church leaders, like any Christians have a past before they were in Christ I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't come to Christ until I was nearly 30 years old. I did all kinds of stuff you don't know about and hopefully never will. And God has forgiven me for all of them. And I don't spend virtually any time thinking about it. All the guilt and the shame that could easily be associated with those sins, I have cast behind because the Lord has cleansed me and because his own word says, as the psalmist wrote, He gives us steadfast love toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen. Isn't that great? So Paul can run the race because he stripped the weight, the burden of all that stuff. He's left it behind. So he can win. He can win the race. He can gain the prize. Question, have you done that? Because you may be struggling in the race because you haven't left off the burden, the monkey on your back. That's why we have to do this. you got to strive for holiness. That's likeness. Hebrews 12 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which, out in which with no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you cannot see the Lord. So here we're talking about spiritual contentment, but then you need discontentment, but you need spiritual motivation before we accomplish it, before we win the prize, right? So why do we stress, why do we strain To win, it's to see the Lord. That's the second point here, his goal for us as a church, starting with you, spiritual motivation. And we find that very simply in verse 14 of our text I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, there, not only acknowledging he's pressing towards something like the end, the finish line of our faith, that's a reward. He admits he doesn't have it yet. Not yet at least, because he knows he isn't perfect. He's not complete as a Christian, but this prize is so great, it's so valuable, that he is gladly leaving behind his past, whatever thought he had of anything else that was valuable. He's getting rid of all of that, and he wants to take possession of the prize. And he describes the prize here as a heavenly call, upward call, which in Ancient Bible language would mean like an invitation to a feast. We've received that from Christ because we're in Christ. So what is this upward call about? Let me clarify something to you. Heaven can be somewhat overrated. What do I mean? The upward call is more a purpose than a place. If you're Christian, that's already promised. You're going to be living in the new heavens and the new earth eternally. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's a promise we get, but it's much more than that. Remember what his great purpose for us in salvation. I want you to turn to Romans 8. I want you to be reminded of something very, very important. Romans, that great chapter 8. And remember that my favorite verse, like so many people, is verse 28, that God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. According to his purpose his will. What is that? It's found in the beginning of verse 29 of that text. For those whom he foreknew, that means those whom he loved before the beginning of time in advance, decided to set his love on, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose of the upward call, that golden chain of salvation, answers the question, what is the meaning of life? You're gonna have people ask you that, why am I here? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Romans eight twenty nine just told you. To be saved, to be conformed to the image of his son. Or as a modern translation puts it, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. Because there's glory in that. That's why it's the ultimate answer to this question. Why was I born? Well, yes, to bring glory to God, to magnify him in the world, make much of him, yes. That's the gospel splash, by the way, that you learned if you were with us in the book of Romans. People think the gospel is about us. The gospel is not about you and me. The book of Romans, we titled that series, The Gospel of God. Ultimately, the gospel, the good news that brings us in peace and reconciliation with God is for the glory of God and to give Jesus a church he would die for, love, and care for. We just get the fringe benefits, the benefits of forgiveness of sins, we receive new life, we're born again, the promises of heaven, the promises of abundant joy and sanctification, all that's true. I thank God we have that. That's not why we have a gospel. But see, to think that, to understand that, you have to think God-centered, not man-centered. And Romans could not make it more clear who the gospel is about and for. So our purpose is Christ-likeness. That is the spiritual motivation, our ultimate goal for our sanctification. Why? Because we still have a little ways to go. There's still room for improvement in us. There's still room in the largest room in the world. It says we were made by God to be conformed. Think molded, shaped like clay into a statue. Into what? The image of the sun. You know that word image? Greek, econ where we get the English word icon from, a picture, a likeness of something. That's what we're moving for. We are to take on the image and likeness of Christ as much as we can each and every day. Now let me clarify more false teaching. You are not gonna be the same person as Jesus Christ in your sanctification. It's the image of not Christ, there's only one Lord Savior and God perfect incarnate, okay? You were not reborn so you can perform miracles necessarily and be God in the flesh. So what I take the doctrine to mean is that the Lord has so transformed our hearts when he saved us and continues to do so with his spirit that he's going to finish in glory, that we now approach the holiness, the perfect sinless righteousness and character of his son. In fact, you know, we're taking a quick pause in our series, Basic Christianity from 1 John. I'll give you a little hint, little preview. 1 John 3, one of the great passages there is in verse 2 and 3. That apostle beautifully parallels Paul here. He says, check this out. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, that's the second coming, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's it. I mean, did you get that? That connection? That's Romans eight twenty nine. That's Philippians 3. We're not perfectly yet like Christ, but we will be, In that perfection, in our glorified state, when he returns, that's what we can't wait for. We love that. That's our hope of glory. And so that hope is our motivation to be like him now, as much as we can. John said, purify yourselves now, which is to be holy, which is to be pure, set apart. So the idea is this, simple. Every Christian in this room is to be a little Jesus, junior Jesus, if you will, try to be a little bit junior Jesus until he comes back and you're perfectly completed, which he's guaranteed this work, by the way. Chapter one of this letter, the Lord says through Paul in the sixth verse, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? At the day of Jesus Christ, at the second coming in the kingdom. So you're gonna be there. You're gonna get there but you run and strain and press on on the road to getting there. That's the prize of the upward call. That is what we need to strive for each and every day, and then we're going to enjoy our perfected bodies with Christ in the millennial kingdom with all the saints and forevermore. If you have been foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, then you'll be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in glory. Until then, we strain We strive toward holiness, Christ-likeness now, because that's just our purpose for being here. So in summary here, the Father wants you to look and live like God, his Son, here and now, until you will be like his Son even more so and forevermore, okay? So what does that look like? Now I want to give you a little foretaste of how you go about doing this. you got to look to Jesus. You have to imitate Christ, like the name of that classic book, And, you know, I sympathize. That's a tough assignment. You say, I can't do that. Be Jesus, really? Who can do that? I don't think so. Well, let me let you feel better. You can't be perfect as Christ was perfect in this life now. No, not in this life, not in your own strength. But by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, you can be more like him. That's the race we run. Now, you might think, how do we do that? Do we just keep, we we just do a better job obeying God's laws, moral law from the outside in. We don't do this, we don't do that. And Paul said, no, that is not it. It's not about morality, but holiness, which starts with a state of mind. You know, there's, I I will say this, there's perfect men and women you can't imitate in the faith you know, the best and most Christ-like of them if you want more of an example you can relate to. that's a little closer to home. You know, in our Bible reading plan, we're in the Old Testament, we're reading about Moses. You want to be like Moses? Take the best from Moses. It wasn't perfect by any stretch, right? How about Joseph? Shoot for Joseph. Paul writing this letter. Hey, Paul did write this. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ interestingly enough. Read good Christian biographies, and you can glean, pick up on, relate to, and imitate the most Christ-like attitudes of imperfect people. Frankly, I always hoped that my three young adult children would imitate the best, not all, but the best, most Christ-like attributes that me and my wife, Madi, would display to them. Or you could do the same here in this congregation from what you see in me our pastors Alex and George and ultimately in doing that hopefully that'll help you to become more Christ-like because it does say in the New Testament quoting the book of Leviticus where we're at now by the way be holy as I am holy God said Jesus repeated that be holy as I am holy you're already holy in your position before Christ Now the Lord is looking for you and your progressive sanctification to continue being more holy until we get to glory, the prize of perfection, okay? So you're going to hear this call to holiness and purity, Christ-likeness, and wonder, is this an option? Is this an option? Is this a suggestion from the Lord? Is this a good idea, or is it an imperative, a command? I'm going to tell you, I've spent many, many years reading the Bible and studying the Bible, and I have to tell you something. I'm going to be very honest. I don't find any suggestions from God. I don't see God anywhere saying, I think this might be a good idea for you to try. Or, why don't you try this? God doesn't talk like that. God says, you are like this, so be like this. Indicative, imperative. You are, so do likewise. There's no, it might be a good idea for you to be holy. Jesus says, Be holy, for I am holy. Don't try to be holy. Don't guess whether you have to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. God, don't play like that. I'll tell you something else, very, very important. A born again believer, a real disciple, will want to run this race, will desire to run this race. And if you don't, that's a red flag. Not good. Check something out. Believers love their Lord and they want to be like their Lord. Again, they're grateful to him for who he is and what he's done for them. And they want to please him. And they want the assurance of salvation, by the way, like Paul writes, security of salvation, 1 John. Because they do want things like that. We talk about the fact that your desires change when you're in Christ. Oh, now I have to stop like cursing and getting wasted? Really? That's no fun. If that's a thought, if that's a tough one, that's not good. Not good. Because why? Your heart's been turned from stone to flesh. You are a new creation. All things have become new, right? 2 Corinthians 5 automatically, intuitively, instinctively, in the spirit, you should want to be holy and do these things. If the Lord's got to drag you into the kingdom and drag you to be sanctified, maybe you're not all that person. So what do you do? Imitate Christ. What was Christ like on earth in his ministry? So I can imitate him. It's simple. You want to know what it is? Abide in him. Read the Gospels. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how Jesus did all the one and others that were commanded to do. Go to the cross, see how he gave himself in love for others. Go to the Gospels and see how he forgave, how he was kind, he was gentle, he was meek, mild or self-controlled, he was humble, he was full of grace and mercy, he prayed for others. Those are the things for us to do and you just go to the Gospels and walk and talk with him and see how he did them. Be in the Gospels. Somebody comes new to Christ or be refreshed, revived in the faith, use this. People say, I, I'm new in the faith. Should I start reading the Bible like in the book of Numbers in the genealogy? Should I begin in Genesis? You could, but you know what I would tell a person? No. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John in particular. So you get to know the one who saved you. Be with him. Walk with him. Talk with him. Just learn from him. Just, that's why you have four different perspectives, four different gospels on the same person. Three are synoptic, like biographies, and then four, the fourth. John is very theological, Christological, why he did the things he did. What's the purpose? Read all of that. Even though you're in the Bible reading plan right now, and you're like, you're in Leviticus, okay, do your chapter or two, and you know what? Sneak over here to Matthew, Luke, or John, and Mark. Grab some Jesus. And if you wanted a list, look, and just write this down. If you want something practical, I would tell you, go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Read that. There's a list of attributes Paul gives about new people, new believers in faith, what they should look like. It's all Christ-like. Peter, that apostle, echoes that in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 15. Read that. Awesome text on what it looks like to be, he says, a partaker of the divine nature. There it is. In Christ, image of Christ. Why? As a way to confirm your calling and election. That's assurance of salvation. Ah, go there. Read it. It says there if you press ahead, you strive, you run to be like Christ, Peter says this, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'm going to close as we prepare to take the Lord's table with this quote I love so much from an unknown Zimbabwean pastor. may have heard this before. And I can get this to you afterward if you like, if you request it from me. He talked about attaining the goal of Christlikeness this way. He said, quote, I am a disciple of the Messiah. I will not let up, look back, or slow down. My past is redeemed. My future is secure. I am done with low living, small planning, smooth knees, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, or rewarded." My face is set. My goal is sure. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions, few. My God is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, detoured, delayed, or deluded. I will not flinch in the face of adversity, not negotiable at the table of the enemy, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of the Messiah. I must go until he comes, speak of all I know of him, and work until he stops me, and when he comes for his own, by the grace of God, he will have no problem recognizing me because my colors are clear." that'll preach. That's a good and faithful servant, and if he's already in eternity, trust me, he won the race. That's Christ's likeness. Let's be that kind of Christian in CCC this year. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit being among us today. We thank you for this call. This command that you've given us through the Apostle Paul and his pen. That the goal for us as a church would be to start individually to be Christ-like. Conform to the image of your son as you work, we work in doing so. Help us to recognize that we need to be spiritually discontent from where we are today. And that we want to press on toward the prize. Strain and stretch forward. Run the race till we finish. Let us be aware of that spiritual motivation, Lord, so that we're encouraged now, even with unfailed face, beholding your glory, Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, because this comes from you, Lord, you are the spirit. And Lord, and if someone in this room today doesn't have a yearning to be Christ-like, to be holy as you are holy and you've commanded us to be, not only in our position before you, but practically in our lives, then maybe it's because that person does not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if there's anyone in this room listening, Lord, may this might be the day that they come to Christ and be saved, be rescued as we observe the cross, Lord as we as we come to commemorate and celebrate the Lord's table. I pray, Lord, that this would be a time that someone in this room would give themselves to Jesus, to repent, to turn away from a life of sin and selfishness, and to trust in Jesus alone as the one that forgave their sins. And by that grace and mercy, by that grace and mercy, they would they would just believe and accept Jesus. We pray you'll do this work as only you can in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. We'll now take the Lord's table. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org.